This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I want to talk about uh, the nature of faith as it's defined in uh, the chapter we're looking at by Kyogen Carlson. But I decided that I'd like to come at the topic from somewhat different direction. And I'll begin by reading you something about the nature of knowledge and certainty uh, by Guy Davenport. This is a piece that uh, appeared, little essay that appeared in the New York Times in 1980. And it's entitled, Hergolesi's Dog. Some dozen years ago, in the middle of one of those conversations that is apt one minute to be about Proust's asthma and the next about the shrinking of candy bars, Stan Brackage, a filmmaker, asked me if I knew anything about Pergolesi's dog. Not a thing, I answered confidently, adding I didn't know he had one. What was there to know about Pergolesi's dog? There, he replied, is the mystery. Just before this conversation, Brackage had been shooting a film under the direction of Joseph Cornell, the eccentric artist who assembled choice objects in shallow box frames to achieve a wonderfully evocative, partly surrealistic, partly homemade American kind of art. He lived all his adult life more or less a recluse on Utopia Parkway in Flushing, New York. Sifting through his stacks of clippings and ottomans to find the magic combination of things. A celluloid parrot, a star map, a clay pipe, a Greek postage stamp to arrange magically in a shadow box. He also made collages of what you would call sculpture, such as dolls in a bed of twigs, and films. For the films, he needed a cameraman, thus Brackage's presence on Utopia Parkway. The two got along beautifully, two geniuses inventing the strange poetry of images. Victorian gingerbread fretwork fan lights, somber rooms. Brackage was fascinated by the shy, erudite Cornell, whose hobbies ran to vast dossiers on French ballerinas of the last century, 
the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy, and the bric-a-brac of all ages and continents. In one of their talks, Pergolesi's dog came up. Brackage asked what the significance might be of the 18th century Italian composer's pet, and Cornell bristled. He threw up his hands in profound shock. Not to know Pergolesi's dog? He had assumed, he said with some frost and disappointment, that he was conversing with a man of culture and sophistication. If Mr. Brackage could not command an illusion like Pergolesi's dog, would he have the goodness to leave and not come back? Brackage left. This ended the collaboration of the Republic's most poetic filmmaker and one of its most imaginative artists. The loss is enormous, and Pergolesi's dog came between. I did my best to help Brackage find this mysterious dog. He had asked everybody in the country who he thought he might know. I asked. The people we asked, they in turn asked others. Biographies and histories were of no help. <laughs> no one knew anything about a dog belonging to or in the society of Pergolesi. For 10 years, I asked likely people. And when my path crossed brackages, I would shake my head and he would shake his. No D of P yet found. <laughs> we never considered that Cornell was as ignorant of Pergolesi's dog as we. In Samuel Butler's notebooks, there's an instructive story. Zeferino Carestia, a sculptor, told me we had a great sculptor in England named Simpson. I demurred and asked about his work. It seemed he had made a monument to Nelson in Westminster Abbey. Of course, I saw he meant Stevens, who had made a monument to Wellington in St. Paul's. I cross-questioned him and found I was right. We are, no, we are never so certain of our knowledge as when we are dead wrong. The assurance with which Chaucer included the Greek general Alcibiades in a list of beautiful women, and with which Keats embedded the wrong discoverer of the Pacific in an immortal sonnet should be a lesson to us all. Ignorance achieves wonders. The current Encyclopedia Britannica informs us that Edmund Wilson's Axel's Castle is a novel. It's a book of essays. And that Eudora Welty wrote Clock Without Hands by Carson McCullers. And the New York Review of Books once referred to the Petrarch Papers of Dickens. Vagueness has a vernacular charm. A footnote in a Shaker hymnal identifies George Washington 
as one of our first presidents. When Cornell, Cornell, when he had his tizzy about Bergolesi's dog, was beyond vagueness and into the certainty of the dead wrong. Sooner or later, I was bound to luck onto the right person, who, as it turned out, was wise to Cornell's waywardness with bits of trivia. This was John Bernard Myers, an art critic and dealer. What Cornell meant, he felt sure, was Borghese's dog. I looked as blank as Brackage had on the previous fatal occasion. What? Not know Borghese's dog? The self-styled Countess Borghese was a vaudeville figure in the 1930s. She had a trained dog who typed answers to questions on a special machine that fitted its paws. After the crowned heads of Europe became bored with her act, she and the dog legged it to Hollywood and dropped into oblivion. Just the sort of thing Cornell remembered and had a dossier of clippings on and expected other people to know. I said this uh, essay originally appeared in 1980, and we can tell it's from a, another era, because in order to try to find the source of an obscure fact, you went to someone who knew a lot, read a lot, had a background, in art, in literature, in music, and you consulted other people who were considered experts. There was no internet. There was no Google to, to immediately try to give you an answer to this sort of thing. So 10 years were spent with a whole net of connections and associations trying to track down This, this obscure reference, it, you know, and it turns out Cornell himself got it completely wrong. Now, Davenport focuses on the problem of knowledge and how we are never so certain as when we're wrong. But when I read this, I focus on the fact that Cornell was willing to break up a friendship and collaboration that was going so beautifully and productively over this detail, this seeming insult or rupture. Cornell evidently was deeply invested in what I would probably call a kind of twinship relationship with Brackage. He thought he had really found an alter ego, someone just like him in his sensibility and his knowledge. And when this little incident occurred that showed that they were not exactly 
in sync, not exactly on the same page, it had the effect of being a terrible narcissistic injury. He felt betrayed. I thought I knew what kind of person you are, but you're not that at all. And that's where I think this story dovetails with Kyogen's uh, issue of faith. I should just add, though, that um, someone sent me this recently because thinking the whole tale would be very different now in the day of, days of the internet. Uh, someone did the experiment of asking this new open source AI chat uh, program to uh, what was Pergolesi's dog. And the machine confidently uh, described Pergolesi's dog as a short story by Guy Davenport that that explores the nature of the relationship of man and animal, of loyalty and love, communication and the role of language. In other words, it confabulated wildly and made up something that was just, that was complete nonsense. So it it also was uh, completely certain and dead wrong. It's the kind of thing we can find happens to us when uh, Wikipedia gets something wrong, but we're just sure it has all the answers. In any case, I I. I thought of this in terms of uh, Hyogen's discussion of faith because he talks about it in what for me is a kind of um, abstract way. He talks about a faith that gives rise to our our search, the uh, the way-seeking mind, the faith that there's something out there to find. He talks about the faith that karma tends towards enlightenment, that we that as we learn the root causes of our suffering we automatically grow less and less self selfish, more and more interconnected. And finally, he talks about this very deep and basic faith that at bottom, everything is okay. Now, what strikes me about these kinds of faith is, in a way, how impersonal they are. And I think that the kind of faith that I am most interested in is really synonymous with trust and has to do with trust in a particular human being, a teacher. I think that 
in some ways, it's always easier for us to put our faith in the Dharma or in Buddha or even in meditation itself. But the real challenge is always putting your faith in another human being. Because when you do that, you're, you're liable to be disappointed. And that's where what I think happens in this uh, Davenport story. It's a story of faith and disillusionment, trust and disillusionment. Right? I think that it is inevitable that we come to a teacher and to practice full of idealization. And depending on our own history and background, that kind of idealization can be relatively down to earth or it can be wildly extravagant depending on what connotations we've built up in our mind around the notions of teachers or Zen masters or enlightenment. And we are, of course, very liable to be suddenly shocked if the enlightened master doesn't know the equivalent of Pergolesi's dog. If all of a sudden some gap opens up, oh my God, I thought this person was a Zen master, but here he goes doing God knows what, right? In addition to uh, the three kinds of faith that Kyogen mentions, he also talks about the illusion of a key, a kind of fantasy we have that there's some kind of answer to get that's going to solve our problems. I think this is analogous to what I usually call a curative fantasy. And I think that one of the ways I would probably differ with him is that I think that we are all inevitably drawn to practice, not through some deep intuition of the Dharma, but because of a curative fantasy. Maybe this is just a much more basically psychological take on things. But I think we can't help come to this through a curative fantasy of what meditation is and what it's going to do for us. You know, I've said uh, we all come to Zen for the wrong reasons. And yet, that's coupled with a kind of counterbalancing force, which may dovetail with his ideas of faith, that in a certain sense, even if we come for the wrong reasons, we can't do it wrong as long as we keep showing up. Because what meditation is, is kind of precisely uh, a, a, a discipline 
designed to engage and deconstruct curative fantasies. It's, I've said it's like flypaper for all our ideas of enlightenment. It's supposed to draw these out. And we're supposed to go through this long process of deconstruction. Where did you get that idea? And disillusionment. And then there's this crucial turn. You know, Joko used to say it takes people typically five or six years to really find out what Zen is all about. And when they do, most of them quit. You see, I think that she would say, you know, that at that moment of disillusion, most people then go to the center across the street, find themselves a new teacher to idealize, a new practice to get their curative fantasy all revved up from the beginning all over again. Now, maybe you would say when that disillusionment really happens, that's when faith has to kick in. I think that somehow we have to develop an awareness that disillusionment at a certain level is not a sign that there's something wrong with our practice, but a sign that it's working. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Now, I think that one of the reasons we can survive that is we also can discover that meditation is doing some things we didn't necessarily understand or anticipate. We may find it acting on us in our lives in the background or in some ways that gives us a kind of stability or settledness, maybe a taste of that sense of okayness that Kyogen talks about. And it allows us to just keep going in the face of that uncertainty. It's what we would wish Cornell was able to do with Brackage when he finds out he's not his twin. He needs to be able to have the thought, I've always lived with the belief that it's only a twin that would understand me or recognize me. It was only a twin for whom I could really feel connected. But here's this guy who is almost a twin, but not quite. And it turns out it's working better than I expected. Maybe I don't need 100% twinship after all. Maybe 99% will do. But that doesn't happen in this story. Cornell rejects the person 
in the in favor of the idealization. And I think that is something we are all in danger in, in terms of coming to terms, not just with the humanity of the teacher, but the humanity of our uh, fellow Sangha members. What is this motley crew I find myself sitting with? Right? It's easy to sort of think, I'm the only one here who gets it. I'm going to be the one who's the teacher's favorite. All these other people, they don't know what they're doing. They're just getting in the way. You know, there are lots of versions of these stories. My point is that disillusion comes at all sorts of levels and all sorts of flavors. But ultimately, we need to be able to um, see the other and ourself as equally human. You know, I, I usually tell people that it's sort of the good news and the bad news that I'm, I'm the teacher. You know, clearly I'm a human being with uh, my own complicated personality. And yet I managed to become a teacher. Well, you can either say, I guess teachers are not uh, what I thought they'd be cracked up to be. Enlightenment isn't such a big deal after all. Or you can use it to say, well, if that guy can do it, you know, you know, anybody can do it or I can do it, right? That there's not such a gap. That's often the uh, dilemma with um, wonderfully charismatic teachers. Uh, and I think the, um, you know, the old story of Buddha and Ananda is sort of the great case example of that. Ananda was the disciple who sat at Buddha's feet through his whole life, had a photographic memory for everything Buddha ever said and taught, and yet never himself was enlightened for decades and decades. And when I hear that, I can only imagine Buddha was just too dazzling and idealized and different a, a figure. Uh, for Ananda, whatever Buddha had was just like a million miles away from anything he could ever have. And, you know, you get into that position where you then ask, can a, can a dog have the Buddha nature? Can Ananda ever have what Buddha has? You all are lucky. There's not such a big gap. Right? 